please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 2. I have prepared for this sermon. (laughs) Matthew chapter 2. Now the two men that I want to introduce to you are both good men. I would recommend that you read the books of either one, and the books of both are still available today. One of them is recognized as one of the most astute and influential thinkers of the Puritan era. And to say that he is the the king of the Puritan theologians is making quite a statement. There are more than 16 volumes that are still in print today written by John Owen. In fact, I, if I just think in my head, I've got the 16 volume set and then I have his six volume or eight volume commentary on Hebrews and I have his, his book on historical theology. And so all of them have been in print during my lifetime and I think at least 16 of them remain in print today. A great thinker. Uh, and Thoroughly educated. That's the first man that I want you to uh, keep in mind for just a minute. The second is someone who, as far as education, was drastically different than John Owen. He had virtually no formal education. There are rumors that by the time John Bunyan got married, he had even forgotten how to read. I don't know that those rumors are justified. But still, he was an extraordinarily uneducated man. John Owen was well accepted in, uh, in Puritan culture. He was uh, an important figure at one of the two main schools, Oxford or Cambridge. I can't remember which right now. I, I think Chancellor at one of those schools, so like the president. John Bunyan, on the other hand, was a man who made his living Uh, fixing pots and pans. He was a tinker. And uh, both of them were preachers. Both of them were well-known figures in 17th century England. John Bunyan, of course, wrote uh, the immortal classic Pilgrim's Progress, parts one and two, and several other books that are worthy of a careful, careful reading. Well, John Bunyan was uh, very popular among the common people, and when he preached, there were large crowds that would come to hear him preach. He didn't have a license to preach, and so he was put into prison for preaching without a license. And the judge was wanting to be very lenient with, uh, with Bunyan because Bunyan had a wife and he had children that he had to support, and if Bunyan was not able to pursue his trade, then These children were likely to go hungry. And uh, so the judge said, Bunyan, if you will just promise to stop preaching, I will not require you to go to jail. But Bunyan said, I cannot do that. God has called me to preach. And uh, Bunyan's wife was in support of him with this. And uh, she, she appeared before the judge 
pleading for her husband to be let out, but not on condition that he stop preaching. He couldn't stop preaching. Bunyan spent 12 years in prison. And I've heard that during that time, when he was again offered his uh, freedom, if he would just stop preaching, Bunyan said, I will let the moss grow over my eyelids before I will do violence to my conscience. God multiply men like John Bunyan. Well, you know that sometimes people who are academically astute are a little impatient or condescending towards uh, people who are not well-educated. And uh, so I think that in view, of, in view of that, someone once asked John Bunyan, I'm sorry, someone once asked John Owen, the academic, something about John Bunyan. And apparently he asked uh, the question in such a way that he expected that John Owen would give a condescending answer concerning John Bunyan. But instead, John Owen said, I would gladly trade all my learning if I could preach like Bunyan the Tinker. Now that's the, I think that's one of the main points of this passage of Scripture that we're going to be considering together this morning. There were scribes, there were learned people in the law who knew where Jesus was supposed to be born, but they never went looking for him. And this is a danger that all of us face, especially those of us, I'm looking at you theology students, especially those of us who commonly deal with uh, spiritual things in an academic way. Several years ago, I was teaching a poetry class, and uh, I asked, has anyone in this class ever studied poetry? And there were probably 25 students in that class, and there was only one who spoke up and said, well, we had a unit on poetry in my home school. And I said, what sort of poets did you read? She said, well, we never read poetry, we just studied about the various rhythms and authors of poetry. And I said, studying poetry without ever reading poetry is like constantly singing scales but never singing a song. That was as far as I went then, but my imagination has been at work since that day. It's like It's like learning how to give a bounce pass and a chest pass and an overhead pass, but never playing basketball. It's like learning all of the chemical reactions that take place when you cook, but never eating a cheesecake. And the same danger confronts us as people who have have multiple Bibles in our house and people who have access to... What I hope is good preaching, if not from this pulpit, then from the radio. Every day you can, you can hear good preachers like John MacArthur and like Alistair Begg and others that I might mention. Men who are wonderful preachers. John Piper, <coughs> people who expound the truth in such a way that it, you understand it. But merely understanding it is not the goal of divinity. Divinity. 
The goal of theology, the goal of the study of divinity, is that we might become people who go to Bethlehem looking for Jesus and find Him and bow down and worship Him and give our lives and give our best and give our gifts to Him. I have, uh, I have little qualms about saying that the, the religious figures in this passage of Scripture represent those of us who have the opportunity for a seminary education, uh, have an opportunity to, to get an academic degree with, uh, with regard to things that are taught in the Bible, but just be careful that it doesn't just become mere academics. But it's, it's relevant for all of us because all of us can become doctrinal connoisseurs. We, we know enough about the truth that we're able to recognize heresy. We're able to recognize when someone steps the least little bit out of line. We know how to scan poetry. But we never read the poem. And Jesus is the poem that is meant to be read, meant to be experienced. Let's see this passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. From those two verses, I get the first two points of my sermon. First of all, the setting. Secondly, the wise men. And then next we'll see the fang of the dragon and his cohorts. That's what I'm calling Herod and the religious people who helped him. And then the last thing that we'll see this morning is the, uh, the example of the wise men. But first of all, the setting. <clears throat> when did this take place? I don't think that it took place at the manger. So often when we see nativity scenes around the Christmas season, we may see the representation of shepherds, and then there will be usually three wise men dressed in Persian attire, and each of them is offering, uh, one offering gold, one offering frankincense, and one offering myrrh. There's a, lot of a, there's a considerable amount of mag- imagination that has gone into that. I don't think that any of it's harmful. We don't know that there were three kings. We assume three kings because there were three gifts that were offered. We also don't know that, we certainly don't know their names, although you can find what they're supposed to be, Balthazar and Casper and Belthior, but that's not in the Bible. And uh, then we don't know that one offered one gift and the second offered the second gift and so on. It may be that there were 14 of them. It may be that there were only two of them, Uh, but they came. I don't think that they came to the manger. In fact, uh, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 39, it says, after the parents had done everything that was required by the law, and we just recently considered that passage of Scripture, that was when they uh, had gone to the temple and, and Simeon and Anna had recognized that this was Jesus. Well, that ends in verse 38. And in verse 39, it says, after the parents had done everything required by the law, they returned to Nazareth to their own town of Galilee to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Nazareth was the town in Galilee, the region. So, and then here we find the wise men coming to Bethlehem. 
Here's, what I th- here's the way I think all this works out. After Jesus was born, they thought it would be appropriate for us to raise the son of David in the city of David. We're going to, we're going to move to Bethlehem. And so I think that the little family went back to Nazareth and gathered, gathered whatever household goods they had, and they came back and set up housekeeping in Bethlehem. And uh, sometime after they had set up housekeeping in Bethlehem, then that was when the wise men came. It, we will see in this passage of Scripture that when they came, it says that they came to the house. The house. And then after the visit of the wise men, uh, Herod throws his fit, and uh, Herod tries to kill uh, all the little baby boys that were born in Bethlehem. And uh, Bethlehem was not a very large town. It may be that there were just maybe as few as six, maybe as as many as uh, 12 or 14 baby boys under the age of two in the town of Bethlehem. It was just a small little village, Uh, but not not 14,000, as I read in one commentary. Uh, But anyway, an angel appears to Joseph and says, they're trying, to kill, they're trying to kill Jesus. You've got to escape. And so he goes to Egypt. And then when they come back, he, he's intending to settle in Bethlehem again. But he's warned. But when he hears that Archelaus is reigning in place of his father Herod, then he removes and goes to Galilee and lives in Nazareth again. So you have to, you have to be a fairly careful reader of the Bible for that even to... To matter to you, but if you are a careful reader of the Bible, then it may have, may have occurred to you how does all this fit in. So I, again, so just in summary, after Jesus was born, they go back to Nazareth, they get a few things, they establish the residence in Bethlehem, then they have to go down into Egypt and and stay there for a while, and when they come back, they can't settle in Bethlehem because Joseph is afraid of Archelaus, who is Herod's son. So they go back and they live in Nazareth so that Jesus is called a Nazarene. So that is the setting for this event. How old was Jesus when the wise men came? We don't know. Uh, probably not a newborn infant. Uh, it's possible that he was as old as two years old. Because when Herod finds out when the star had appeared, then uh, he... Uh, has all the baby boys who are less than two years old uh, killed in Bethlehem. But I don't think that that's a sure indication that Jesus was two years old. I think that it would probably take a long time for these wise men to come from their region and reach Bethlehem where they encountered baby Jesus. That's the setting. Now, who are these wise men? Uh, you may have a translation that calls them magi, M-A-G-I. And it, you don't have to be a very serious etymologist to recognize the, the, the similarity between magi and magic. And uh, indeed, there is an etymological uh, connection. So that we're not exactly sure why they were called magi. It could be that they were after a region of the country that they came from. But that's probably more than we need to get into. And uh, so they were essentially philosopher astrologers. Philosopher astrologers. They were wise men. I think that these are the fellows who are mentioned in Daniel chapter 2 
when Nebuchadnezzar, several hundred years before this, has a dream and he asks uh, the magicians and the soothsayers and the wise men of Babylon to tell him his dream and to interpret it for them. Now, they couldn't do it, but Daniel could. So Daniel is in the same vicinity with the, the type of men that these magi or wise men are. And I think that is significant. You know that Daniel was uh, an extraordinarily influential person, first of all in the kingdom of Babylon, and then when the Medes and Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire, then he once again rose to prominence among the Persians. And so Daniel was a respected figure and a respected voice, and Daniel was a show, a show enough, died-in-the-wool worshiper and follower of the true and the living God. And Daniel and other of the captives who would uh, have been in first Babylon and then in Persia, they, were, they would have copies of the Hebrew Scriptures with them, and those Hebrew Scriptures would be copied. And so I think that these wise men, even if we grant that they are just interested in holy things and how that the stars might influence our lives on earth, these men had enough acquaintance with the Hebrew Scriptures to know that a Messiah is going to be born, and maybe even enough from the Hebrew Scriptures to recognize that when he was born, there was going to be a star that would indicate that he had been born. But the evidence for a star appearing is extremely scant. I read to you from uh, Numbers chapter 24, Balaam's prophecy, how that he saw that there a star would rise in Jacob, but clearly the star there is the Messiah himself, not a star that's in the sky. And so, really, we don't know how these wise men knew that this, this astrological phenomenon which they observed indicated that he who was king of the Jews had been born, but they knew it, and once they saw it in the sky, then they set off to see. Now, these guys are probably from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, Iraq, that part of the country. And so this is a journey of several hundred miles, and they, can't, they probably didn't go straight across the desert that separates Iraq and Iran from, from uh, Israel. They probably had to go a northern route. So several hundred miles probably took them several weeks, if not months, to make the journey. Now, this, this star, it may have been some kind of literal astrological phenomenon. Uh, if it was a star, it's some kind of something different than anything that we know of as a star. Because stars, uh, stars don't act like this star. I have a theory. I'm not going to be fussy if you disagree with me about this. But several times in the book of Revelation... Visitors from heaven are called stars. Uh, then I saw a star coming down from heaven, blazing like a torch. And at least, on at least two occasions, there are stars. One of them, I think, is the devil, and one of them, I think, is a, a good angel. But they both are described as stars. I think that this was probably a bright, resplendent manifestation of an angel who was guiding them. But... I don't have proof of that from the Bible. I just think the way that it moves and settles over one house, 
it's not what we think of as a star because stars are huge, many times, many times larger than our earth. And so I don't think that it could pinpoint one specific house. Here is where Jesus is. Then also, I think it's interesting that apparently after they follow the star for a while, after they set off on their journey, sometime the star disappears. Now, I'm not sure when that was. Uh, But later on, the star appears again. After they leave Jerusalem and go on their way, then the star appears again, and they rejoice with exceeding great joy when they see the star again, and it leads them directly to the house where Jesus was. And so I I read uh, part of a letter that was in one of my commentaries. It was written by the the, uh, a man named Hooper who was uh, martyred during the the slaughterings of Bloody Mary in the 1500s. And he, he opined that the star disappeared when they went into Jerusalem and started seeking information from Herod instead of continuing to follow the star. And he gave it as an example of you should continue to follow, <clears throat> follow the Lord <clears throat> and trust in the revelation that he has given and not seek secular corroboration of the information that the Lord has given. So Hooper uh, speculated that the star disappeared when they stopped following the star to go into Jerusalem to get some confirmation, and that's when the star disappeared. We don't know. It may have been much earlier than that. I do wonder, why did the star disappear? And I think, well, Hooper gives one explanation. I think another possibility is that it emphasizes that we are to walk by faith. And even when the star that we have seen is not visible to us right then, we are still to walk on the basis of what God has revealed to us. Never doubt in the dark what you have seen in the light. You may have some dark days. You may have some struggles with depression. You may feel like the clouds cover the face of God. But say with John Donne, Though thou with clouds of anger do disguise thy face, yet through that mask I know those eyes, which though they turn away sometimes, they never will despise. I don't see your cheerful face right now, Lord, but I have seen it, and I know that you are good. When darkness veils his lovely face, what? I rest on his unchanging grace. And every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. I can't see the rock to which my anchor is fastened, but it's still there. And my anchor is still attached to it. And while the storms of life are raging, my anchor holds fast. And so it may be that this is just an illustration. Keep following the light. You may recall, I mentioned earlier John Bunyan, earlier, early in Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian is outside the city of destruction and he has a great burden on his back, he's met by a man named Evangelist. And he, Evangelist wants to, to help him off with his burden in the appropriate way. And so he says, if you are afraid, why don't you run? And Bunyan and the Christian says, I don't know where to run. And Evangelist says, do you see yonder shining light? 
Christian says, I think I do. An evangelist says, keep that light in your eyes. And when you reach there, it will be told you what to do. Now, the advice of evangelist is, God has given you some light in the word of God. Follow that light that you have. Don't try to become an expert in theology or an expert in in, uh, biblical philosophy. Don't try to become an expert in eschatology and the study of the end times. Follow the light that you have. And it will lead you into the next step. Follow what you know to be right. That may be why the star disappeared for a while. But it also could be that this was God's way of leading the wise men to encounter Herod. And so having thought a bit about the wise men, who they were and how they got there, now let's turn our attention to Herod, whom I believe to be one of the fangs of the dragon, the dragon that is described in Revelation chapter 12. When John the Revelator says, and I saw another sign in heaven, a great red dragon with uh, ten horns and, uh, and seven heads. And he stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. So Satan knows that Jesus has been born and Satan is using Herod as uh, a tool to try to kill Jesus while he is still a baby. Let's see what the Bible says about that right here. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now Herod the king was a very wicked man. He's called Herod the Great. And uh, we know that he died about the year 4 B.C. So that's one of the things that helps us to know that that the people who developed the Gregorian calendar got it wrong here. The Bible's not wrong. The calendar is wrong. Jesus was born about the year 6 B.C. And so this has got to take place sometime in the next two years because we know that Herod died about the year 4 B.C. He's called Herod the Great because he, he had uh, spearheaded some beautiful construction projects throughout Israel, including the reconstruction of the second temple, the, the temple that Jesus and his disciples uh, were part of. And so... But Herod's a very wicked man. You can find information about Herod on on the internet or in various commentaries. But he was a very wicked man and he was troubled because he was a very jealous man. They come saying, where is the king of the Jews? And Herod thinks, oh boy, my, my dynasty is being threatened. And so he's troubled. And then why is all Jerusalem troubled with him? Well, when these visitors came to town, it was obvious that they were from way out of town. It was also obvious that they were these philosopher astrologers who had a history of being people who confirmed new kings. And so the people of Jerusalem feared that this was the the first clouds of a coming political storm. There's going to be a, a shifting of the political power, and we all know what that means there's going to be a lot of trouble for us. And so they were troubled. And uh, so Herod takes steps. And Herod gets some cohorts. These are also fangs in the mouth of the dragon, as far as I'm concerned. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. From the beginning, the chief priests and scribes are, are characterized as, as, as bad folks. 
I don't know of a single instance in the New Testament where the chief priests and scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are cast in a good light. They are always people who who know the outside of things, but are not but are not internally engaged with what they know to be true. So Jesus says, be sure you you do what the Pharisees say because they sit in Moses' seat, but don't do what they do because they're not following what they know to be true. They, They know the truth, but they don't follow it. And on another occasion, Jesus said, beware of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the disciples said, ah, it's because we didn't bring any any bread. And uh, then then Jesus says, don't you remember I fed 5,000 people with five loaves? Don't you remember I fed 4,000 people with seven loaves? I'm not talking about bread. And then the disciples understood. He's talking about the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees is be content with external knowledge. Be content with external presentation. It's what people It's what people see that matters. We're not all that worried about what God sees. And Jesus says, that will eat you up like leaven spreads through a a ball of raw dough. Beware of that. And it is a leaven that we must beware of ourselves. So he calls together these chief priests and scribes, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet... And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And uh, to me, this is a testimony of what astute students and observers they were of the Old Testament. Not sure I would have caught that, that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. But they did, rightfully so. We read that as our first scripture reading from Micah chapter 5. And so now Herod, this wicked, jealous man, hatches a plot that he thinks will enable him to snuff out this threat to his political supremacy when the baby is still a baby. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. This story made a great impression on me when I was just a little boy, I'm sure, before I could read. Oh, what a bad man he must be to want to kill baby Jesus. And then what a terrible bad man he was when he, when he failed to kill Jesus specifically. And so he thought, I'll just kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem, which is what he did. He was a very bad man. But God thwarted this, and uh, God, God protected his son And Jesus grew up to do all that God had appointed that he should do. Now let's turn our attention back to the wise men and notice uh, what they did and see in their actions an example for us. So verse 9 says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I don't know how verse 10 could make it any clearer that they were ecstatically, deliriously happy. They rejoiced, not just plain old rejoicing, they rejoiced exceedingly. And they rejoiced exceedingly, not with your average joy, but with great joy. 
they were extremely, hilariously pleased that the star was there again. And so look at what they do. They followed the light that they had. They go into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. That is the example that we should follow. That is the goal of finding Jesus, that we fall down and worship him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Give him what you have. If you happen to be just a little drummer boy there, then just play your drum. I meant that as sort of a little, I was hoping to get a little chuckle out of that. Uh, You may have thought that We Three Kings of Orient Are was a hokey song. Uh, It's not. But the little drummer boy is. And uh, so no no indication that there was a little drummer boy. Yet, Yet the principle is good, even of that little hokey song. I don't have gold or frankincense or myrrh, but what I have I'm going to give to the king. And that may be the position that some of us are in. Although most of us have a little gold and some precious things that we can give to the Lord. And then verse 12 wraps up the thwarting of Herod's plot when it says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. That's all we have of the wise men. I don't know if they became followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope so. I think the indication is hopeful. When they fell down and worshipped him, their journey apparently was not a mere political one to try to create ties between their home country and, and the land of the Jews. It seems like it was a religious journey. Their focus on religious things, it seems to me, made them somewhat oblivious to the political consequences of consulting with Herod. And they didn't know the religious furor that was stirred up by them. These men apparently were focused on finding Jesus. And I tell you, in this day and time, it's easy to get distracted because we live in a day of endless distractions and possibilities. But in the midst of all of all of the entertainment and the information that is competing for your interest, may God help you and God help me to be people who follow the light to find Jesus. And if it means that we have to be ignorant of political things, then so be it. If it means that we never know the information that will allow us to make waves in the world of religion, then so be it. Sell everything that you have so that you might buy this field and possess the treasure. Sell everything that you have so that you might buy this pearl because there is nothing else like it. There's nothing else like him in all the world. It's time for us to remember our Lord, not as a little baby, but to remember that he came as a real, a 